0: you're listening to conversations on character a podcast brought to you by the jubilee center for character and virtues at the university of birmingham your host is dr tom harrison and this week he interviews dr scott parsons former u.s army military intelligence officer now character development interrogator for the military program at the united states military academy at west point Welcome back to the latest episode of the Conversations on Character podcast. Um, We have a great guest with us today, Dr Scott Parsons. Scott has had a long and distinguished career of active service within the US Army, uh, having uh, undertaken three tours of Iraq and one of Afghanistan. More latterly, uh, um, Scott's moved from someone who's had his character very much tested uh, on the uh, front line and in the battlefield uh, to teaching about character and ethics at West Point, which is the foremost uh, military uh, academy in America. Uh, Currently, his roles include the assistant professor of Uh, philosophy and ethics at West Point, but he also has another very intriguing job title, which we talk about in this episode. Um, Scott is also the character education interrogator for the military programme at West Point as well, so you'll hear more about what that role involves. Throughout this discussion, we talk about that move from really having his character revealed very much on the the battlefield and, and in active service to what it means to teach about character and ethics to young military cadets today. I really hope you enjoy listening to what I thought was a fascinating conversation about character in professional army settings. Hi, Scott. It's great to have you as a guest on the Conversations on Character Podcast. Uh, And I believe you're speaking to us all the way uh, from New York or near West Point. Is that right? That's right, Tom. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, it's great, because we've had so many kind of formal and, and kind of informal conversations since I've known you, Scott, about uh, the place of character in our own lives, uh, but also in our professional careers and jobs. So it's brilliant to get this as an opportunity to kind of record uh, this, whether you can get some of these thoughts kind of captured. But what I really want to start with is taking you back to um, your, your actual kind of military career when you, I know you served on a number of tours, I think three in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. And I'm pretty sure your character was tested quite a few times during those tours did did you have a kind of a particular exemplar or role model or really somebody really stood out uh, and kind of helped you through those uh, kind of uh, must be kind of really memorable but grueling experiences?
1: Absolutely Um, there's one when I my first tour uh, to Iraq in in 2006 I was a platoon leader uh, and my company commander whose name is Major Mike Morris uh, stood out even then to me is, is a uh, exempl- moral exemplar in a number of ways. We were, unfortunately, our battalion commander at the time was kind of a toxic leader. Um, and it was a really bad setting, uh, a leadership setting. But Mike really made the best of it. And me and my fellow platoon leaders, he really mentored us by what he did. We saw what he did. And, and at, the end the, um, at the end of that deployment, he said something very profound. Uh, to, to me and the other platoon leaders that, we, that I have since shared with my junior officers and that I've shared with cadets at West Point. And that's that in every, every leader you have can teach you something, even the bad leaders can teach you what not to do. And so I thought that was really interesting, but he, no matter the situation, uh, what we were doing, he would, he, would, he would role model these, you know, these virtues for us. Um, and he, he now, he since uh, left the military, he's a school teacher and, and that's the kind of person you want obviously as a school teacher, as someone that exemplifies these, but, you know, no matter what was how we were tested in, in, in war, uh, he did, he always chose to do the right thing. Uh, and he's, he's just stayed with me all these years.
0: What's absolutely clear in that story is that how much um, characters, obviously, exemplified in what people do, but also in what they they say, and actually uh, how much you kind of learn from experience uh, when things go well and not so well, and, and from that. It's interesting because um, your mentor, the person you just explained there, is your, your leader, uh, it's kind of made a similar sort of move from you from, from active service into kind of teaching, obviously, in, in different sorts of settings. But how, how did you find that move? Kind of teaching about ethics and character in the in the classroom.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you ask that question because in in many ways there's a lot of similarity, and but there's also some differences. You know, you go from being actively engaging and conducting military operations to getting the opportunity to go into a classroom, and and in that period of time, I worked on a master's two master's degrees in order to be qualified to teach, and so there was a period of time I was around no other soldiers. No one but you know civilian students, and and that was a very interesting time for me after having been in the army for a long time. But then when I got to West Point, getting in the classroom and, and interacting with them in a lot of ways, it was still being a mentor. You know, my day to day job might have been intel before, um, and in the classroom now being an instructor. But what's happening is outside of what I'm, my primary duty is, it's actually being a mentor to whether we're talking about junior soldiers and officers or cadets, uh, and so. Looking back now, after having retired, there's just a lot of similarities. And the important thing there for me is this idea of being a moral mentor, this, you know, being an exemplar. And I've got to do that pretty much in every aspect of my career, be around people, either receiving that mentorship or, or offering it.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So that's kind of the common theme that runs all the way through it. But I mean, I suppose there could be an argument that some people would say, particularly in your context, that kind of uh, character and kind of the ethical elements related to character can't actually be taught in the classroom. They may be modelled, as you've just said, but, you know, can, can we teach in classroom? They they tend to be revealed, you know, uh, in your case, in, in the battlefield. Um, I mean, what, where's the link, I suppose, between teaching around ethics and what actually goes on in practice?
1: I like to think about developing virtues and character and practical wisdom uh, in in this way. So you have to hear about it first. Someone has to discuss it with you. So for instance, if I'm talking about ethics in, in class and we go through normative ethical theories, we talk about Kant and deontology, we talk about Mill and utilitarianism, we talk about Aristotle and virtue ethics, they need to hear about what virtues are. They need to understand this idea of phronesis. That's not enough, which is, I think, what you were getting at. So if you, if you think of it in a, a sport, sporting example, right? So if you really want to become a really good penalty kicker in football, right? Um, so maybe you get a book on how to do it, right? You read, you get the background on that. And then you watch a couple of YouTube videos and, and you're watching, you're like, okay, that makes sense. Step this way, step that way, body weight. Those alone, while you need that information, someone needs to explain this to you, that alone isn't going to help you be a really good penalty taker, right? you actually have to go out there and, and practice and practice and practice and kick it and kick it and kick it. And that idea, eventually you'll hopefully become better at it. So the same is true whether you're you know, out in Iraq or you're in the classroom at West Point, if I'm explaining to them, they need to know these terms first, this idea that, that you came up with, the idea of virtue literacy. They really need to have that background before they can develop it. But that's not enough, you're right. They need to go out there and then practice those virtues. And if they practice them within the context of what they do, currently students, in the future military officers, within that context, then they can practice it and ultimately get better at that virtue and ultimately, hopefully develop practical wisdom so that when they're in situations where uh, virtues collide, they choose the right one.
0: Yeah, that's great. um, As you were talking there in a completely kind of separate uh, situation, I was thinking about the number of YouTube videos I've watched recently about how to put a shelf up. And uh, uh, (laughs) yeah, and then actually it was the practice of doing it revealed that perhaps I needed some more practice in that area. So, I mean, this obviously echoes a lot of what we do within kind of school-based approaches that, you know, there is a cognitive element to kind of character ethics. And you can, what I use the term kind of cognitively prime to some extent people to kind of think through these scenarios and these dilemmas. Now, that won't necessarily mean that they uh, kind of respond in exactly the way that they may have thought they would respond, you know, kind of out of that scenario. But certainly it kind of makes them more primed and ready ready for those those situations. I mean, you've got a, uh, I don't know whether this relates to it, but you've got a fantastic title I saw your profile at, at West Point, which is the character education interrogator for the military programme. I mean, that's, that's one hell of a, a job title. Tell me more about that, Scott. What is that?
1: And so I should be clear that I'm not interrogating anyone as much as I would like to. But no, it's, it's integrating. And it's interesting that they came up with the title because it's, it's a verb that they've turned into a noun, but I'll take it. I have a job, so I'm happy. Back in 2019, uh, our superintendent, uh, Lieutenant General Darrell Williams, uh, was thinking hard about, it. our mission statement is that we develop future leaders of character. And the 47 months are at West Point, that's one of the things we wanna do. But he, he was really curious and interested in how best to develop character. So he, he set up an ad hoc committee. Uh, and I happened to be selected to be on that committee. Uh, I was very fortunate. And one of the things that they did was start researching how best to do that. And quite quickly, uh, we figured out the Jubilee Center uh, for Character Virtues was a place to go. So we like to think of ourselves as the preeminent leadership institution in the world. And clearly, you guys are the preeminent character education center in the world. So uh, what better pairing? So we learned a lot. We uh, we brought cadets, and we we actually listened to you speak. We listened to James and Christian speak. We learned a lot, and we developed a lot. And so we wanted to integrate this. We used your framework uh, and kind of modified it slightly to fit us. So when you think about the four domains of virtue uh, that you guys at the Jubilee Center talk about, uh, we came up with a fifth one, uh, a profession-specific one for us. We call them the martial virtues that, or military virtues that complement the intellectual, the moral, the civic, and the performance virtues. And, and really, honestly, if you look at it, it, it's almost like we just picked and pulled a few of them out from the other four domains, the ones that were specific to our profession. So we recommended that to the superintendent. We also recommended that he set up a new program, a new division, and hire new people because I needed a job. That's why I recommended it. Just kidding. Uh, but uh, we, he, we, we recommended that he stand something up called the uh, Character Integration Advisory Group, Uh, lovingly referred to as the CAG Uh, and and he stood that up. And the point of that would be to have individuals who help write curriculum, uh, do assessment within the different uh, pillars at West Point into different programs. So we have an academic program, we have a military program, we have a physical program. So when you think about things like Sandhurst, um, that's really primarily making officers by focusing on military work, right? Most of them have their, their undergraduate degree already before they get there. So what we are is kind of this weird hybrid between developing military officers, but also a university, a higher ed institution that, that grants um, b- bachelors of science degrees. Um, so we have an integrator that works on the academic program uh, and she helps integrate character into the curriculum there. Um, my job is to do so within the military programs. And, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And then we have someone that does that with a physical. When we talk about physical, we're thinking about you know, physical fitness, that kind of thing and introducing and infusing character uh, within that curriculum. Um, so for the military program, like the one I've been working on mostly is every summer, we, the cadets go through summer training in a variety of ways. But the big one is what we call beast because it's so pleasant to experience. It's cadet basic training. Uh, and um, we're going to have new cadets come in that will, in the fall, be freshmen or first-year students. We call them plebes, short for plebeian, right? Uh, No no privileges whatsoever. But in the program, one of the things we're doing this summer is we're introducing a character journal uh, for the new cadets, and we've set aside a full hour in the evening after dinner for them to do reflection and write in their journals, and this is just unprecedented, and so we're really excited about what's going to happen with this, and we've also set up an assessment so that the day after they show up in July, they're gonna get a, a survey. The survey is gonna contain other things in it, but I have four questions in there about virtue and about virtue literacy. Then they're gonna spend time with the journals over the course of the summer. Uh, and at the end of the summer, they get another survey and it's gonna ask those same questions. We're gonna see if, if this character journal, this reflection time, help them develop their virtue literacy. So I'm really excited to see what comes out of that. So I'm really excited.
0: So are we, because uh, I think um, there's a lot of talk and writing in the literature about the use of reflective journals at all different stages, whether it be in professional practice or indeed I've used them in kind of primary schools, et cetera, beforehand. But um, the evidence link between kind of um, that. Uh, and it kind of the impact of them I suppose is 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 not as is not as strong as it could be and tends to for very good reasons as you say be focused on particular components like like literacy so yeah we, we're really looking forward to that I just want to take you back to your comment though around you know how you built off the kind of the Jubilee Centre framework uh, around a lot of the work you're doing and and clearly a lot of that Jubilee Centre framework is very much kind of virtue ethics kind of inspired and and base but if uh, as a lay person as I am to kind of your work at, at West Point uh, and kind of more the broadly military, you would think that most of it is controlled very much by a kind of deontological view. It's all about kind of rules and telling people how to behave and ensuring that you know that behavior is um, managed through maybe kind of sticks and carrots types of approach. I'm not saying this is right, but this is kind of the the classic viewpoint of of kind of uh, how military run. So I'm 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 kind of um, wondering where the place is for virtue ethics within the kind of the, the military.
1: You know, I think you're right, Tom. At first blush, I think, you know, deontology seems a perfect fit for the Army, right? We're a rule-based system. They're very important to the Army. Um, Really, in every aspect of military life, whether you're thinking about uniforms, uniforms have to, it has to be the right uniform, worn the right way at the right time. Um, And so that's kind of the crux of it. And if you think about that, I mean, that's kind of an innocuous idea of everyday life. But if you think about uh, in war and in battle, we have things like rules of engagement. Again, these are rules, right? And and obviously, rules of engagement are important because we take very seriously the idea of only fighting against combatants. We don't wanna target non-combatants. So these rules are important. But while that's true, I think the army doesn't necessarily have to be a rule-based system or at least exclusively, right? So if your actions are motivated and based on your character, uh, then your actions will fall in line with the rules anyway, uh, unless um, the rules are ambiguous, where a senior officer gives you an unethical or a legal order, in those moments, we want our character to override the rules.
0: Yeah, that's okay. That's great. That's, I love that. And yeah, yeah, there's a point that rules may be there for foundation, but when the rules aren't they go wrong or perhaps not enough or insufficient, then that's where the place of character come in. But I mean, there, there may be examples that you've seen where kind of, uh, kind of character-based ethics have to actually clash with rule-based uh, ethics. And is, is that something that you've experienced personally or actually seen?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think about my very first deployment to Iraq. Something So basically, I'm an intelligence officer. And when you're gathering intelligence and you're disseminating it to the people that need to know it, there's, you know, there's kind of a, a system to it, a collection management system that you have to go through. So in other words, you don't just want to go directly to someone and tell them. It needs to go up through the proper channels. The proper people need to know and vet that information and decide what best to do with that. Uh, and in knowing that, that seems again at first plus seems to make sense, right? You don't want just people telling anybody anything. So, I had a particular instance that happened in two thousand and seven. I was supporting the the Marines uh, in the Euphrates River Valley, um, close to Fallujah, and you know we get our daily briefings of the people that we're supporting in the areas they're going to be in, and. Interestingly enough, we, we, um, our, my linguist picked up that um, there were some people talking on, on a radio and said, hey, we see, we, we see the Americans coming this way, get ready to um, detonate the device. And, and so I triangulated where that was and I, and I re- realized, wait a minute, they, that's the area that I think the Marines were gonna be in. Uh, so I contacted the, intel, the Marine Intel officer and I said, hey, you know, are, where, where are your guys at today? And she said, um, oh, they're, you know, in this place. And I said, okay, you need to tell the convoy commander to stop immediately. And she said, what? And I said, just call him right now on the radio. So I could hear, I'm talking to her on one radio. I can hear her on the other radio uh, call out to the convoy commander. And so she was a, a lieutenant. I was a lieutenant. Th- this was a major. And so the major said, what? Stop the convoy. I could hear this whole conversation. Um, and he said, uh, okay, fine. So he stopped. And then quite quickly after that, we heard the insurgent say. Oh, they stopped. I wonder why they stopped. So that way we got confirmation. These are the right people. So I told um, the lieutenant to um, go ahead and and instruct the convoy commander to get off the the tarmac, go one kilometer into the desert and then get back in the direction they wanted to go for three kilometers. And then they could get back on to the to to the tarmac. And I could I could tell the hesitant in her voice to tell the senior officer uh, to do that. But she did it. And he said, what? Why? And she said, just do it because she and I were communicating on a secure line and she was not communicating on a secure line to him. So he does it. And sure enough, the insurgents say, why are they leaving the road? They're gonna bypass all of the, the IEDs. And sure enough, they, they did bypass them uh, and, and uh, they were safe. Now, what happened was when that convoy got back, they told their, their battalion commander what had happened. Uh, and he was so pleased and so overjoyed that the, the lives that were saved, he got in a helicopter and flew all the way to my base and to track me down to thank me, which was amazing. So he, he, he thanked me and he thanked my battalion commander who I referenced earlier as the toxic leader, right? Because he was, he didn't know about this. He didn't know what had happened. I didn't go through the proper channels. I immediately called my Marine uh, Intel partner. Uh, so after, you know, he thanked me, he gave me a coin and the Marine left, the Marine Colonel left. My colonel berated me for doing that and told, told me I did the wrong thing. R- rules are important in the Army. I should have followed those rules. And I said, sir, if I would have done what you asked me to do, there would have been a lot of dead people. Um, so I'm not sure that I, I think I made the right decision. And he said, you did not make the right decision get out of my office. So uh, that's an example there where I clearly, on purpose, did not follow the rules. And I to this day, I'm grateful I made that decision. I wouldn't be able to live with myself yeah. knowing that I couldn't have helped them.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that definitely sounds like right, the right and the, the wise decision in that, but it did bring you into kind of conflict in, in I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic story and it really brings to... Uh to kind of focus you know kind of the intensity of some of these decisions that have to be made in all sorts of contexts uh, but it brings to mind a kind of a parallel with piece of research i did with some medics who are actually quite resistant to some extent to virtue ethics because he also just said i'll just refer up if there's no problem we just refer up which uh, is this kind of where there's a blame there's a claim you know type culture um which a lot of us are very fearful of and i don't know if that pervades itself within within the military but i'm just wondering how your kind of cadets and the people you're actually teaching respond to the idea of, of of virtue ethics when you start to explore what that that looks like.
1: So I think you know I think it's important to point out in the course that I teach, I, I teach the, the introductory philosophy and ethics course to, to second year students. Uh, so that means that they're somewhere between 19 and 22 years old, um young, very young people. Um, now I don't really get the same kind of pushback that you described, but I do get some in a in a kind of tangential way. So I think I think it's quite interesting and if you look at the people who are proponents of of virtue ethics. Um, Many of them are also proponents of the idea of just war theory, right? And so if you think of Aquinas and and Augustine and a lot of these people that talk about even modern day just war theorists uh, talk about these same things and and they're really very compatible. Uh, So what happens after we go through normative ethical theories and and, uh, virtue ethics and we get to just war theory? Um, I always have a couple of cadets who take this kind of real politics view of war, which is that we should do absolutely everything we can in, in the strongest possible way uh, in order to win the war as quickly as possible. And so they don't really seem to think that being ethical in war is, is a factor. In fact, they they actually usually argue that it's like a category error. So it'd be like applying the rules of cricket to football. It just doesn't make any sense. So you should just go out and fight the war, do what you have to do. If you have superior weapons and superior soldiers, then you're gonna win and that's fine. And so. By the end of the term, I usually get most of them, most of the realists on board with fighting ethically. Um, But it takes a while to get through. And there's always one or two that says, you know, that's great, sir. I appreciate what you're saying, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. And those are the future officers that scare me a little bit. So hopefully, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, as they get older, they develop their moral reasoning a little better and it, it'll start to make sense to them.
0: You mentioned there um, kind of moral reasoning and hopefully developing moral reasoning. And I, I should have said in my introduction, congratulations to Dr. Parsons, because obviously you've just completed your PhD and you were looking at moral reasoning, I think, in, in Army Cadets. It, just very briefly, could you, could you give us a couple of highlights of what you found from your study?
1: Absolutely. So I, I'd like to point out at first that... Um, in the study, I, I looked at basically my students in my course, in my courses and, and some other instructors did the same thing, were part of the study. We had roughly just slightly over 75% of them are male and just under 25% are female cadets. The main instrument was a survey that included five moral dilemmas that were kind of military focused. Uh, and they're ones that had been used before uh, in other studies at West Point, also the Jubilee Center did it with the British military. The, we gave them the survey before teaching them the very first day of class, they were given the survey. And then toward the end of the semester after receiving instruction, we're given the same survey again. Same moral dilemmas, same questions. In these, when you look at the moral dilemmas, they ask you questions about what is the right thing to do? What is the right action? And then would you do it? What is the moral reasoning behind that? And what we found was is that the female cadets always started at a higher place uh, than the male cadets did. And then additionally to that, they improved on all five moral dilemmas. What was interesting is that the males only improved in one and the other four, they actually went down in their moral reasoning, which (laughs) just means I'm a horrible teacher. Uh, But it was interesting that not only did the females improve over time, but their answers began to converge and form a tighter picture where the male cadets were just all over the place, it was scattered. now, what the one study that the, the one moral dilemma that the male cadets improved on had to do with torture. And what was interesting is that we spent a lot of time in class talking about torture. The kids had a strong opinion. And I referenced those realists earlier in the conversation. Uh, they always bring up the movie, the Hollywood examples, right? Um, you've got 10 seconds. And if you don't torture the guy, the whole city's going to be destroyed. That doesn't happen in real life. And they're still going to hold out and they're not going to tell you and if you're torturing someone uh, at some point they're going to break and tell you anything you want to hear just to get it to stop and it's usually not the truth um, so we would go through this we spent a lot of time the cadets and by the end of the you know the section on just war theory the cadets were on board most of them with you shouldn't torture so why this is interesting is of the five dilemmas that's the only one that we specifically spoke about in class i, I label this as familiar to them and so it's not shocking that statistically all of the cadets improved in this area because we spent a lot of time talking about it. Um, the other four areas, there was something on fraternization, something on a loyalty dilemma. Those never really came up in class. Um, and so it's, it's it's interesting that talking about them first and spending time with them uh, helped them do better. Now, the downside and the negative side to that is that means that they're not able to take these concepts and apply them outside of something they're being talked about. And so that's something that we need to, think about and work on in the future in our course.
0: I mean, that's a fascinating finding about the difference between kind of uh, different genders, but also it seems that you uh, found uh, some gaps in terms of your own kind of implementation or where you might put more focus on in the, in the implementation. Well, we really look forward to seeing kind of more publications coming out from that and that research. But just to test you further, I felt like I just asked you a viva-based question there. And just to finally test you just at the, <laughs> at the end of this uh, podcast, we, we finish off with the, the ever-popular kind of virtues from a hat uh, where I pull out a virtue and then see whether you can... Can give some sort of exemplar uh, in your in your life, or you know, kind of from history or from present times that you think exemplifies that. So, are you, are you ready? I'm going to di- I'm going to dig into my hat here right now. So the first one that's coming out is uh, c- courage. Actually, courage.
1: I, I think I was courageous coming on talking with you. Uh, okay, there we are. That's that one <laughs> done. Do you, want to, do you want to move to another
0: one quickly, Scott? <laughs> yes, please. I'm going to I'm going to grab one more out. Well, I'm going to go for gratitude.
1: So I, I, I'm going to give the, the person that I think most exhibits that is my wife, Claire. She is just a generous, kind person. And you do the slightest thing. She, I just see the way that she um, reaches out and interacts with other people. And she's just she's not only kind, but she's gracious and she shows gratitude in everything. She thanks everyone all the time. Uh, she's just a pleasure to be around. And that's the first person that came to mind for
0: me. Yeah, I I absolutely agree having met Claire, We'll leave it there on that lovely note. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Scott, for joining us on this podcast. It's been a really delightful conversation.
1: Thanks, Tom. It's been my pleasure.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to Conversations on Character, hosted by Dr. Tom Harrison and produced by me, Joe McDowell, on behalf of the Jubilee Centre for Character and Virtue. To learn more about character, the research of the centre, or to give us feedback on this podcast, Visit jubileecentre.ac.uk or find us on social media at Jubilee Centre One. Thank you and we'll see you next time.